Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Though the current political climate might lead one to suspect that religion and medicine make for uncomfortable bedfellows, the two institutions have a long history of alliance. From religious healers and religious hospitals to religiously informed bioethics and research studies on the impact of religious and spiritual beliefs on physical and mental well-being, religion and medicine have encountered one another from antiquity through the present day. In Religion and Medicine, A History of the Encounter Between Humanity's Two Greatest Institutions, Dr. Jeff Levin outlines this long-standing history and the multifaceted interconnections between these two institutions. The first book to cover the full breadth of this subject, it documents religion-medicine alliances across religious traditions, throughout the world, and over the course of history. Levin summarizes a wide range of material in the most comprehensive introduction to this emerging field of scholarship to date. Jeff Levin holds a distinguished chair at Baylor University, where he is University Professor of Epidemiology and Population Health, Professor of Medical Humanities, and Director of the Program on Religion and Population Health at the Institute for the Studies of Religion. Hi, Jeff, and welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, Lindsay. It's great to be here. So let's start by talking about the genesis of this book. Why did you want to write a book on the encounter between religion and medicine? Well, very simply, for about the last, oh gosh, since the early 1980s, so not quite 40 years, um, I have been conducting research uh, broadly on the relationship between religion, spirituality, faith, and health outcomes, physical health, mental health, well-being. I am, I am by training, I'm an epidemiologist. I'm not a religion professor or sociologist or psychologist. I'm an epidemiologist. And uh, I guess people are... Little more familiar with epidemiologists these days because of the because of the virus, uh, but we study factors that are associated with the distribution of health and illness and disease in populations. And while most epidemiologists typically study infectious diseases or chronic diseases or things like that, I I was trained in what is known as behavioral or psychosocial epidemiology. So I look at factors that are related to human psychology, human interpersonal relationships, and so on, and how these affect the distribution of disease and health and illness and morbidity and mortality in populations. And uh, since the early 1980s, uh, I actually was a religion major in college, believe it or not, the rare pre-med that was a religion major. Uh, I had an interest in how faith impacted on human well-being, and I had found a number of studies written on the topic, and I wrote some literature reviews. And this started a whole career for me of uh, conducting research on religion and health. Well, it struck me after doing this for, gosh, about 30 years, that there's a a larger conversation here um, between the institutions of religion and medicine than just looking at health studies. In fact, um, not to disparage my own work and the work of my colleagues, but of all the different ways that, that religion or faith intersect with the institution of medicine, uh, health studies are maybe the least interesting. Now, I mean, it's, it's my bread and butter. I'm really turned on by doing this research. But it seemed to me that there was something more going on 
longer standing than just these interesting uh, epidemiologic research studies. So I began exploring this topic a few years ago, and I wrote some papers. I've given some talks. I've lectured at Harvard. I've lectured at Duke. I've lectured at uh, uh, Texas, Baylor College of Medicine, a few other places. And I got a really good response. So I thought, gosh, maybe I'll just write this up into a book. So when you, you talk about religion and you talk about medicine and how these two worlds connect or intersect, for better or for worse, there seem to be so many different dimensions to it. Yes, there are these very unusual research studies that people like myself and others, Harold Honig at Duke, several other people, Ellen Eidler at Emory, a few other friends, have, have been conducting for 30 or 40 years. <clears throat> but there are also other ways in which these two domains of human life, faith and medicine, uh, overlap or interface. It's ethics, it's missions, there's the work of healers, um, there's medical education, there's health policy, healthcare reform. Most people maybe aren't aware, but so much of the recent healthcare reform debate in the United States over the last 10 years was informed by the uh, by activism and lobbying efforts on, uh, on the part of religious denominations. So there's there's a very broad conversation here. <clears throat> and I thought that it would be fun and it would be instructive to explore all of these dimensions. So for me, this book was almost like uh, doing a work of history, of social history, of ancient history and contemporary history. But it was kind of, a, I, I was putting on a, a social historian's hat and it was a lot of fun. And believe it or not, it was actually fun to not have to be an epidemiologist for once and to... Uh, to explore this literature in its fullness and, and make an effort to kind of document all the different ways that medicine and religion have uh, have come together. So that's that's sort of a long-winded answer of where this project came from, uh, and it's turned out really well. I've gotten um, I've heard from colleagues uh, that really liked it and are really glad that this book was written because there have been lots of books on religion and health, but just a few on religion and medicine, mainly mainly the work of historians like Gary Fernbrenn or Amanda Porterfield, outstanding books, but this is a work from somebody within the medical world writing on the same topic. So it's a little bit different perspective. Could you describe for us um, the historical connection between religion and medicine? Well, I mean, that's a that's quite a question. <laughs> um, <clears throat> I, I would put it this way. You cannot tell the history. You cannot describe the history of medicine without talking about religion. Religion was there at the origins of medicine. In fact, medicine was kind of an externalization, if I can use that word. It's kind of an outgrowth of the work of early healers in antiquity. What we know today as medicine, what we, what we know even as, say, hospitals, um, were, were outgrowth of the work of people of faith and of religious institutions. And by, and by the same token, I don't really think, and maybe a religion scholar would debate this, I don't know if one can tell the story of religion, the story of the history of religion, without talking about healing. So kind of just the opposite. Um, one of the principal functions of, of uh, priests and shamans and uh, religious workers, if that's a phrase, if, again, dating to antiquity, dating to prehistory, was in conducting rites and rituals that engage the spirit world for purposes of improving the condition of human life, especially of the human body, and of efforting to combat disease and to, and to heal illness. 
So I think that that um, one of the things that I said in the book uh, was that because uh, it was kind of like the the, the takeaway point is that the, the the interconnections or the intersections of medicine and religion uh, are multifaceted and they're longstanding. They go. The, Medicine goes back to the origins of religion. Religion goes back to the origins of medicine. Uh, so that's that's kind of how I would answer that. And in the millennia and century since, and in the present day, both uh, meta institutions have a lot to say about the other meta institutions, and they are still in relationship. Uh, the, the good, the bad, and the ugly. They're in relationship in positive ways and in negative ways, and. This book was simply an effort to try to document some of the more constructive ways that that faith and medicine have been in partnership, have been in alliance. Um, you present three different narratives um, that sort of describe the involvement of religion and medicine. Um, these narratives are religion as a, a negative force in medicine, religion and medicine as um, complementary, and religion as underlying systems of medicine. So could you describe these three narratives in more detail for us? Yeah, sure. Um, well, so I just alluded to that. I mean, I, I think that when <clears throat> people think of, hear the phrase religion and medicine, or spirituality and healing, or faith and health, or one of these phrases, there's something that I think for, for some of us, especially those of us in medicine and those of us in science, it's maybe a little off-putting, maybe even a little lurid. Think of uh, TV faith healers or religious zealots um, blowing up family planning clinics or, or the anti-science rhetoric of, of uh, people that uh, object to vaccines and so on, or, or maybe people who embrace sketchy uh, kind of new age therapies instead of uh, validated medical care and so on. So I think that there's a... Um, there's kind of a negative connotation. And certainly so much of the history, certainly maybe in the last 100 to 200 years, so much of the history of the intersection of science and medicine with religion and institutions of faith has been troubling. And uh, I don't think anybody could deny that. And there's been a tremendous amount written about this. But from my perspective, there's another story to tell. The ways in which uh, religion and medicine have worked together for the common good, um, ways in which, for example, religious people and religious institutions have underwritten uh, medical research or founded great healthcare institutions or uh, served as a basis for bioethical decision-making that helped the human condition and so on. So I, I think that... Um, Describing the relations between religion and medicine as uh, just kind of one sort of polarity, all bad or all good, uh, is not really accurate. And again, I focused more on the constructive in this book, not entirely, but only because so much has been written in the other direction. But that is not to, it's important for me to say this, that is not to uh, negate that or deny that. Yes, there are some very, uh, there has been a a uh, very negative, harmful, and deleterious uh, impact of religion, broadly, broadly described on, on on medicine, on healthcare, on healing, and we continue to see this. And and you know, sadly, 
the last few months, I've been doing a lot of media the last few months uh, about the SARS-CoV-2 virus and about COVID-19 and about how institutions of faith and pastors, especially in the United States, have interfered with primary preventive efforts, um, have uh, done things that have put their own congregations at risk. Uh, and, and it's really unfortunate. And we still see this. We still see kind of a tension uh, between these two domains, medicine and science and religion. Uh, it's absolutely there. It's absolutely present. I don't think it can be denied, but uh, I guess my point is it's not the entire story. There is something There is something positive. The world didn't need another negative book about the science and religion. So this was an effort kind of to focus more on, on um, religion and medicine as complementary and, and to describe historically the ways in which so many of the philosophies and schools of uh, health and healing throughout history grew out of uh, religious traditions. For example, uh, Zhongyi, traditional Chinese medicine, grew out of and was influenced by themes in Taoism and Confucianism. Uh, Unani medicine, the ancient uh, Greek humoral medicine, kind of by way of Islam, became a contemporary school of medicine. Um, Ayurvedic medicine, uh, the traditional medical school in India, uh, grew out of Sankhya and, and the Vedic tradition. And so, and, and, and even, even New Age healing, the, for, in, in, all its, in all its fascinating forms, grew out of kind of a, a metaphysical understanding of the world. Uh, and I think when you read, when you read texts uh, that talk about uh, integrative medicine or what used to be called alternative and complementary medicine, you see themes that would be very familiar to anybody who has uh, read and studied theosophy or anthroposophy, past lives and chakras and subtle bodies and the seven rays and so on. So I think, I think the point is religion and medicine have, have interacted mutually for the common good and medicine, schools of medicine have grown out of religion or metaphysical systems. And then there's been the negative aspect where they've, they've been in conflict. But I think that, I think that all three of those narratives are true and they're all present. Um, I'm wondering if we can get a little bit more specific about, um, the latter two narratives that you examine in the book, um, being, religion and medicine as complementary and religion as underlying systems of medicine. Could you share some examples that highlight this and perhaps using um, contemporaneous examples that, 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 that highlight these narratives that you're pointing out in the book? Well, as, as, comp, as complementary systems, because that's really mostly what the book is about, um, several. There's uh, throughout the book, the, the way, just for the, the listener, the way the book is organized, each chapter kind of takes on a different... Uh, a different intersection of medicine and religion. So, for example, there's a chapter on healthcare institutions, and it tells the story of the emergence of medical centers, hospitals, healthcare facilities that grew out of or and or were sponsored by religious institutions. And it goes back to the fourth century in Saint Basil and uh, the, the origins of the origins of institutional healthcare, but in the present day, even here, think of this. And I don't know how things are everywhere in the world or, or in Canada, but in the United States, so many uh, medical care institutions and hospitals are religiously branded. And uh, for example, in Houston, um, there are, there is a Methodist hospital. There's a St. Luke's hospital. 
there are hospitals and medical institutions with the word Jewish in them. And in other cities, there are, there are hospitals and healthcare settings that have the name Baptist or Adventist. The Adventist system, by the way, is the largest um, private sector healthcare system in the United States. Um, there are Lutheran hospitals, Presbyterian hospitals, and so on. So even in the present day, um, so much of healthcare is sponsored by or affiliated with religious institutions, or at least is religiously branded. So that's that's one kind of complementary uh, connection or interface between medicine and religion. Another, think of think of medical missions. Uh, uh, healthcare ministries, public health ministries, environmental ministries. Um, one of the one of the interesting little factoids that I discovered in researching uh, this section of the book. Of course, we all are familiar that uh, mainstream uh, Christian denominations, Roman Catholics and Orthodox Christians and Protestants and Evangelicals, sponsor healthcare missions to the developing world. I hadn't realized how big an enterprise this was, and I found one site. I don't have it in front of me that said that just in sub-Saharan Africa, there were 100,000 different faith-based organizations sponsoring missions work, sponsoring healthcare missions work or medical missions work. And that blew my mind. I, 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 if somebody had said there were 100,000 people doing this work, I'd have thought, wow, that's really something. But the, but the note said 100,000 different faith-based organizations. So th- there's a lot. I'll just, I'll just leave it at that. Religious institutions are doing the work of bringing health care and public health to places in the world that do not necessarily have institutional structures or health ministries that are providing for all the needs of their populations. So that is a, that's yet another intersection. A, a, another one that, that maybe the readers won't be familiar with, um, health promotion and disease prevention efforts um, throughout North America are, are um, part of the institutional domain of public health. When we talk about public health, at least in the States, we talk about the work of epidemiologists and health services researchers and uh, sanitarians and environmental scientists and so on. But also there's the work of health educators who are conducting interventions, social and behavioral change programs to help people stop smoking and, and so on and to have better health and to eat better all the, all the different facets of, uh, of behavior change. And so many of these programs are sponsored by churches or religious congregations. And again, this was something else that I was familiar with. I'm trained in public health, but I hadn't realized the scope. And these programs, at least in the States, date back almost half a century. And there are hundreds and hundreds, maybe thousands of church-based or congregational-based health promotion, disease prevention projects, especially reaching underserved communities, ethnic minority communities, communities of uh, recent immigrants. Um, Many of these programs are in conjunction with academics. For example, I did my, I I received my MPH, my Master of Public Health degree from the University of North Carolina School of Public Health almost 40 years ago. And one of the very first of these congregational health promotion programs was what was called at the time the Black Churches Project. It was a it was a joint effort between the School of Public Health at UNC and the General Baptist State Convention of North Carolina, which was an African American missionary Baptist uh, denomination. And there were programs set up 
in churches, rural and urban churches throughout the state of North Carolina to conduct things like uh, blood pressure screening, diabetes screening, and to make referrals to primary care doctors and so on. And, and uh, this program was, uh, this project was well-funded. And <clears throat> the present day, it continues on. I'm not sure. It's been so many years since I've, I've been at UNC. I don't know if the university is still involved, but now within the denomination in the state of North Carolina, there's a, there's a, there's a board, there's a division. And this, this project is now, has now been institutionalized into the functioning of the denomination. So I mean, it's fascinating. So this is this is yet another kind of um, intersection or complementarity between religion and medicine, where they're where they're working together, where the two institutions are working together, and uh, and there are more. I could, I, I could go on and on, but these are th- these are examples of of how uh, faith and medicine are working together to improve the the health of the public. So I'm, I find it quite interesting and curious that um, religious groups or institutions um, have, it's common for religious groups and institutions for, to sponsor um, health initiatives. Like why, why is that a site where you see so many religious groups, um, it, it, I guess, inserting themselves? Like wh- why, why, is, why, pu- why public health? Well, I think, I think there are several reasons, but something that comes to mind to me is that it's a an expression, an extension or an expression of ministry um, and an extension of the calling of institutions of faith, which are to care for people who are vulnerable, who are in need, who are, or are especially if secular institutions are not filling the bill. Uh, congregations, churches have always stepped up. They've done this in feed the hungry, right? Clothe the naked, provide housing, provide uh, job counseling, provide um, pastoral counseling. So providing for healthcare needs or working in working in communities trying to fill the gaps are simply part of the the call to go forth. And again, I, if you look at the history of medicine, the history of healing, the history of healers, the history of medicine, the history of hospitals and healthcare institutions, all of this hundreds, thousands of years ago actually emerged out of religious institutions. Um, so the, the idea that uh, human beings, whole human beings who are, we are, we're physical, we're emotional, we're spiritual beings, we have needs. Um, it, it's, it's been religious institutions that kind of were there first to make an effort to meet those needs, to step up, to to um, to serve. So, so for me, th- this connection again, maybe to the, to modern ears, as strange as it sounds, to, to think of medicine and religion working together. Because again, we just mainly hear the the negative stories in in the news. Um, this has actually been the norm throughout human history, and maybe it's just since the middle of the twentieth century, early in the twentieth century, that there's been kind of an estrangement between these two institutions. And so this perhaps sounds a, a little unusual to us, but um, medicine and religion have always been working together, um, always been functioning together um, in ways to help people. That's simple, just to help, to help and to serve. Mm-hmm. Um, well, speaking of the interconnectedness of religion and medicine, let's talk about the separation. Um, 
because there was a distinct separation that happened in a particular historical moment. So I'm wondering if you can maybe talk about that separation, that institutional separation, um, and why that separation took place. Well, that that's a great question, and I I would probably <coughs> excuse me, I probably defer to a historian of science, perhaps like a like a Peter Harrison might might be able to answer that question better. But it seems to me something happened first part of the 20th century. Academic medicine especially became very institutionalized, became very, I don't want the word, kind of scientized. I know that's not a word, but medical uh, medical education and the practice of medicine, at least in North America, changed significantly. There were new laws passed. Um, uh, medicine was more regimented. It became more empirically based. It became more biomedical. And anything that kind of uh, didn't, fit in with that was cast aside or perhaps was was even criminalized. And all kinds of uh, irregulars, they were called medical irregulars, were, were um, not allowed to practice medicine. Uh, and I think that, that there began to be a reconstruction in the, the public mind of uh, what health was, what the determinants of health were, and who it was that were the experts in health. And it became these these folks <clears throat> with white coats and stethoscopes and access to technology. And this became what healing was about and what medicine is about. These folks became the authorities in health and healthcare. And that and understand, this is not a critique of 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 medicine or Western medicine or biomedicine or academic medicine. I think for the most part, this is true. Doctors, doctors um, are trained to deal with health and trained to deliver health care. But anything else that um, kind of uh, had a different perspective or tried to fill in the slack were considered competition. And efforts were made <clears throat> to read them out of the story. And I think what happened was anything other than Western biomedicine, allopathy is, is the word that some people use, allopathic medicine, was kind of read out of uh, polite was 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 read out of uh, polite discussion of, of health. And anybody that relied on something other than the mainstream of medicine, um, anybody that relied on that for their care or uh, was considered perhaps diluted and people who provided care that was outside of these norms uh, were labeled as quacks. And I, so I think for maybe 120 years or so, um, this has been the case. Uh, in my opinion, it's unfortunate. I mean, this has gone to extremes. <clears throat> there was in this country a few decades ago, famous legal case known as the Will case, in which the AMA, the American Medical Association, was convicted uh, of having uh, restrained the practice of chiropractors in the United States. And regardless of what one thinks of chiropractors, um, basically the AMA was accused of and lost the case that accused them of essentially um, the RICO violation, organized crime, and it was a it was a real um, it was a shocking verdict, and in some ways that kind of put the kibosh on efforts to to uh, suppress alternative healers and people who engaged in healing that was outside of the the umbrella of the American Medical Association, and what we've seen <clears throat> over the past thirty years has been in the, in this country at least. Uh, uh, huge increase in the visibility and the mainstreaming of integrative therapies, 
of spiritual-based therapy, spiritual psychotherapy, of herbal medicine, of uh, global systems of healing, such as Ayurveda and traditional Chinese medicine and Nani and so on. So I, th- I think things are kind of opening up quite a bit, but uh, 100 years ago, 120 years ago, things were closing down. And, and I think also what perhaps contributed to this with um, the emergence of forms of mass media, like originally radio and then television, that uh, faith healers, for example, uh, became more visible to the general public. And this, I think, turned off a lot of people and contributed to uh, negative attitudes, negative perspectives about, about faith and its potential insinuation into the world of medicine. So I, I think that helped fuel the disengagement of the two institutions. But again, in my opinion, since maybe the 1990s, these institutions have been finding a way to come together, uh, interact in a more uh, harmonious fashion. This is not to say that everybody is uh, holding hands and singing Kumbaya. I think there's still a tremendous amount of skepticism on the part of some of the leaders in Western medicine toward spirituality. That's, that's the word that's generally used rather than religion. And I think on the part of people who favor uh, whole person care, body, mind, spirit, uh, there's still some skepticism of Western doctors and of Western medicine. And uh, I think that's unfortunate, but I think it's still present and it will probably always be present. But again, just in my opinion, as simply as an outside observer, I think that's lessening. I think there are more ways in which we're seeing these two worlds come together. For example, I'll get, this is a great example for me. In the early 90s, so almost 30 years ago, out of 100, at the time, I think there were 125 or 126 North American medical schools. I think maybe there are about 150 now. There were maybe three medical schools that had any type of a, an elective or a lecture or a course or anything that dealt with spirituality or faith. Um, at the medical school that I taught, uh, I used to teach medical school in Virginia, Eastern Virginia Medical School. Uh, I instituted a, 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 a couple of lectures for the first year medical students. And, th- and this was one of the only things that went on in the United States. Well, now cut to 25 years later, 30 years later, something like 90% of all medical schools have something on the books. In some cases, it's a course or an elective or a lecture series or a or a, um, used to call it co-tailing, a shadow experience where students can go around with uh, pastoral care folks and so on. So, I mean, it's, it's ubiquitous. And a whole generation of medical students now have grown up uh, with an understanding that spirituality or faith is simply part of the equation. And it might not be something that you or me cares about, but by gosh, this is something that's important to my patients. And we have to at least find ways to... Uh, accommodate those beliefs and help people maintain a continuity in their spiritual life when they're, when they're in hospital. I'm wondering if we could talk a little bit about the impact of religious observance on health and healing. Um, You mentioned, you alluded to this earlier um, in our interview um, that you, anyway, the focus of your research was perhaps that, um, at that angle earlier in your career. Um, maybe I heard that wrong, but, um, but you talk about this a lot in the book, or there's one chapter where you talk about prayer studies and, um, and what these studies have found about the connection between religious observance and 
um, and health and healing and whatnot. So I'm wondering if you can share with us um, some of those studies and what they and what they tell us. Sure. Thank you. Now, in my in my neck of the uh, academic woods, this has been the, this has been the most visible part of the religion medicine interface. Uh, to, to cut to the chase, there have been dating back over a century, probably no one knows exactly anymore. Probably north of ten thousand published studies, published empirical studies in the medical literature in which some aspect of religion or spirituality or faith, or do you go to church, do you believe in God, what religion are you, all kinds of questions have been asked. And health outcomes, rates of health or illness of different diseases, heart disease, cancer, uh, tuberculosis, you name it, mortality rates or studies. There have been like at least 60 studies that have looked at how uh, rates of mortality or longevity are influenced by religious observance. I mean, just stuff that I think most people would find (laughs) fascinating and and, and perhaps be surprised to to know that these studies exist. Well, there have been, again, thousands and thousands of such studies conducted. Um, I began my career in the 1980s uh, doing research on this topic, uh, looking at large-scale uh, data collection efforts at medical centers in which, for one reason or another, somebody had asked some questions about people's faith. And then I tried to look at, I don't want to get too statistical, look at the kind of the correlations between these variables and uh, indicators of health or mental health or, or so on. And what was so surprising to me when I uncovered a lot of this stuff was that, for the most part, the relationship's fairly positive. Not exclusively, of course, but out of these thousands and thousands of studies, maybe half to two-thirds found something and intended to be positive, such that people who are more active in a in in uh, participation in church services, for example, tend to have less have lower rates of depression, less anxiety, uh, tend to rate their health better, whether whether it's better or not, tend to be more optimistic about their health. Uh, tend to be more satisfied with life. There are lower rates of alcoholism and drug abuse uh, among people of faith, regardless of one's denomination. Um, there are even studies that show that, on average, people who are uh, active in uh, organized religion uh, tend to have greater longevity um, by by as much as seven years. So th- th- this research is very fascinating. and. Unfortunately for me, it has become controversial, not necessarily because of the research itself, but because alongside of, parallel to all these studies, have been a small number of studies uh, that first came to light in the late 1980s, studies that have been uh, RCTs, randomized control, double-blinded clinical trials of prayer at a distance, absent prayer. And, and for me, these are this. This is a fascinating little line of research. People have basically the same way that we do pharmaceutical trials. The same way, for example, that you know, vaccine for for uh, SARS-CoV-2 or COVID-19 is being tested right now. People are randomized into a treatment group and a control group. There's blinding; nobody knows which group they're in. The the physicians don't know which group they're in. They're administered the treatment, and then they're monitored over time. So there have been studies that have been done. Uh, using prayer, absent prayer, distant prayer for healing the same way. And these have been very controversial. There have maybe been, I'm not sure how many of them have done. The last review I saw, which was almost 20 years ago, 
there'd been about 200 of these. And according to efforts to assess the, the, the methodology of these studies, about three quarters of them weren't any good. That's probably the most polite way to put it. They just were lousy studies. But about a quarter of the studies seemed to pass muster methodologically. They, they dotted all the I's and crossed all the T's. And of those studies, uh, about two-thirds found something, <clears throat> found that, that prayer or <clears throat> they weren't all studies of prayer, but prayer or sending positive intention or sending love or sending heart energy, as a New Age person might say, that doing something that involved kind of the, the, the petitionary prayer or the, the sending of positive thoughts towards somebody seemed to be associated with healing lower rates of, of the bad outcome or even healing of disease. And they're fascinating. Again, most of the studies were were terrible, <laughs> but some of them found something. Well, as you can imagine, within the medical world, these, these were and have been very controversial. Uh, one of my favorite stories, the, the, the fir- not the first study done in this area, but the first one that came to major attention was published in the Southern Medical Journal, in ni- I think in 1980, maybe 1988, by a cardiologist from San Francisco named Randy Bird. And it was essentially, like I just said, it was a randomized, controlled, double-blinded trial of blinded prayer for people in hospital uh, suffering from heart issues. And the, the, the prayed-for group had significantly better outcomes compared to the control group. Well, this was published in Southern Medical Journal. And, um, and, and I, I joke sometimes, the letters to the editor section of the, the next couple issues of the journal resembled the uh, letters to the editor of, uh, well, back when I was growing up, a Sports Illustrated magazine every, I think, February used to have a, a swimsuit issue in which scantily clad uh, women would be cavorting on the beach in, in string bikinis. And invariably, the next issue, there would be tons of angry letters to the editor written in by parents saying, I'm canceling my subscription to Sports Illustrated because of this the sleeves you put in the magazine. Well, the letters to the editor to the Southern Medical Journal following publication of this study 32 years ago were kind of the same. There were some people that were very, very upset that um, they had published this study. In fact, one, I, one and I'm not quoting this directly, but one uh, letter writer said something like, this is a, an affront to reason, an affront to science. And he demanded that the editor never publish another study like this again. And... Um, the editor, I think, fairly remarked. He said, first of all, um, Dr. Bird conducted an excellent study. It, 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 it uh, followed all the uh, guidelines methodologically. It was a very good study. Just because maybe we don't understand the mechanism of action doesn't mean that, that uh, this was not a good study. And secondly, uh, neither you nor anybody else will tell me as editor of this journal what I may or may not publish. And so I think that that kind of underscores how contentious this issue has been. And the fact that in the 30 years since, there have been so many other studies, and most of them have been pretty lousy, um, has not done much to help the issue. Um, now, there have also been some literature reviews and meta-analyses that have been done to try to synthesize the results of all these studies. And it appears that there is a substantial, well, I won't say substantial, a, a, a modest but statistically significant effect. It seems that prayer works. Um, 
Now, my concern with these studies isn't so much over their methodology or their mechanism. It's just the, the idea that um, these, these great questions that have troubled the minds of philosophers and theologians for, forever and ever, like does uh, God answer prayer, is something that is most amenable to be solved through you know, a medical research study of all things. I, I find it, in my opinion, kind of bizarre. I'm, I'm not entirely sure um, what motivated a lot of these studies, other than perhaps just to find out if prayer worked. But I mean, I, I, what I would say is they, they have been a very, very small, tiny segment of the sum total of empirical research uh, at the intersection of faith and health or medicine and religion. And, but they have gotten a, a disproportionate amount of the attention. And I think that's unfortunate because, it's, listen, as, as flawed as these studies are, they are interesting, and some of them have seemed to work. I think they have kind of sucked all the energy out of the, out of the room. They sucked all the air out of the room and taken attention away from these other studies, these epidemiologic studies, that actually are pretty, are pretty interesting, pretty normal, and don't seem to broach any uh, anything uh, outrageous or magical or supernatural. I mean, I think there's ways to understand the, the epidemiologic studies. There's, it makes perfect sense that, for example, older adults that are active in the, in in their faith would maybe have less depression. There's nothing. I don't think there's anything that goes against science or reason or or what we know about medicine or psychiatry. But, but these prayer studies have been very, very contentious. And, um, and you know what? I mean, they're there. I think they've kind of been curtailed. There haven't been as many of them in recent years. What I would suggest to anybody with an interest in this research, the very finest book that has ever been written on this topic was written by my friend, Dr. Larry Dossie, who's a retired internist. And the book was called Healing Words. And I think it came out maybe in 1993 or 94. It was a bestseller. Uh, it's an outstanding book. And it is, in my opinion, the most even-handed uh, effort to, to describe this research, warts and all, the good, the good, the bad, and the ugly. And I would, I would send anybody uh, to Larry Dossie if they want to know more about, about the prayer studies. Um, let's talk about bioethics. Um, you argue that medical decision-making has always been um, or is a, re a religiously informed space. Could you explain what you mean by this and share an example of how religion impacts medical decision-making? Sure. Um, decisions about uh, what is appropriate medical care or health care um, prior to several decades ago was, was the, and historically was the domain of the people who, who, sponsored medical care and underwrote medical care. And in this course, as, I, as I've said before, was religious institutions and priests and, and um, clerics of one sort or another. Uh, the, the, the modern field of medical ethics and bioethics is about half a century old. It really began in earnest in the well, 1960s, became institutionalized in the 1970s. And the, the, hermeneutic, if you will, if that's really the right word, the kind of the hermeneutical rules that govern the decision-making that goes on in a clinical setting that goes on regarding bioethical, the, the bioethics of medical research, uh, these hermeneutics have to come from somewhere. They can come from secular philosophy. They can come from 
faith traditions, but there've always been, or there's been an effort to draw on some sort of a gold standard, uh, whatever that, whatever that might be. And, uh, this has been, uh, for example, uh, canon law or Catholic social teaching or in, or in Judaism, halacha, Jewish law, uh, or again, or, or secular traditions as well, secular philosophical traditions. But the decisions that are made and that are vetted by bioethicists, again, they, they need to draw on some sort of set of guidelines, whether these are secular guidelines enshrining autonomy and beneficence, uh, whether they are um, religiously uh, dictated uh, guidelines to say, for example, that uh, abortion is wrong or birth control is wrong or that uh, blood transfusions are wrong if you're Jehovah's Witness. Um, Decision-making draws on some basis for these decisions. So, so examples. I don't know if people um, remember the, the situation uh, back in the, I guess, in the 90s, there was the, the case of Terry Schiavo. And I, and I spent a couple pages on this in the book. This was a young lady uh, in the United States who had fallen into a coma. And it was very tragic. And um, the neurologists and the doctors had universally agreed she was never going to emerge from the coma. She was essentially, she was alive. She was being, she was uh, alive because of uh, artificial respiration and uh, a gastric tube. But she was, but there was no hope. And this became of this became a kind of the news story of the day, just like the O.J. Simpson murders. It was on the news every night. There was contentiousness. There were groups arguing one side or the other. Should we pull the plug? Should we not? Uh, the governor of the state of uh, Florida got involved. The president of the United States got involved. There were there were again news stories. It, it was really it was it was a terrible situation, and also ended up with uh, the young lady's family and her estranged husband. Uh, having some contention because they had different opinions. The, the the woman's parents were Catholic. They believed in doing everything possible to keep this keep this uh, keep this young woman alive, even though there was absolutely no hope that she would ever come out of her coma. The husband wanted to to mercifully uh, withdraw care, let nature take its course. He was not a Catholic. I think maybe he was a Protestant. Uh, I hope I don't have that reversed. Uh, and this this dragged on for years. It dragged on in the courts. Finally, finally, care was removed, and she passed away. And interestingly, there were two funeral services. There was a Catholic service, and then there was another private service that wasn't Catholic. So the point is, this was very contentious. This probably was the highest profile um, medical clinical ethics case the last thirty years, in my opinion, in the states at least. And the decision making as far as what to do and how to do it and why to do it was driven by competing religious narratives. And uh, activist groups weighed in, Catholic groups, Protestant groups, liberal and secular groups weighed in, right to life, right to die, that, that had no standing in the case whatsoever, that didn't know the young lady, that didn't know the facts of, of the case, that uh, hadn't talked to any of the doctors, but they were, they were agitating for one position or another. And again, the family had their own uh, both sides of the family had their own guidance, their own religious guidance. So this was very messy. It was a very messy situation. But I think it just underscores that the decisions that are made 
in hospitals and healthcare, oftentimes on a, you know on a daily basis, involve involve um, reference to underlying principles that are larger than just uh, the, the secular medical facts of the case. Um, so we're approaching the end of our interview, but I have one, a uh, couple more questions for you, and one's just a general wrap-up question. And I'm just wondering what you um, um, what you think about what we can learn from the interconnectedness between religion and medicine. What does this um, encounter um, tell us about these two institutions? Well, I think they tell us uh, one thing that I would say. Um, they're very powerful institutions. The subtitle of my book was The History of the Encounter Between Humanity's Two Greatest Institutions. Well, that's the kind of thing you say in a subtitle. But, but um, I think they are certainly, they have been the two most powerful and influential institutions in the last 150 years in the world. Um, I think what, what the evidence that I present in the book suggests to us is that um, Religion has a lot to say about a lot of things in our lives other than religion. And we know from the work of sociologists, for example, that faith, that religiousness, that spirituality, that religious identity and observance influences um, family life. It influences how we vote. It, It influences our beliefs and attitudes about politics, about the environment, about sexuality. It influences our beliefs about and our participation in the economy. It influences our skepticism or our willingness to embrace um, scientific developments. And, and, and it influences our interaction with the medical care system. So I think, I think what Evan suggests is that religion, uh, whatever that religion is, and, and if somebody doesn't have religion, their, their non-religiousness or agnosticism or atheism or humanism also influences other aspects of their life. And I think this book simply makes that point as far as the domain of medicine. So to conclude um, on a broad note, I'm wondering if you could tell us what you're working on now. Oh, thanks, Lindsay. Um, well, as a matter of fact, um, probably if there's, if there's one intersection or one aspect of the encounter between religion and medicine that I really didn't go into in depth in the book. It was the whole fascinating story of healers, the work of healers, energy healers, hands-on healers. Um, and I've, I've taught a course, a seminar on that subject at Baylor on the history of religious healers. I've written some on that. And um, after this book came out and was successful, um, my editor at Oxford University Press, I, I spoke with her. And I now have under contract uh, a next book that I'll probably probably be out in 2022 on the history of energy healers. And I'm trying to remember my subtitle is something like the story of the world's most unconventional medical practitioners, which is, I think, is certainly true. So it'll be an effort to um, kind of unpack the history and phenomenology of uh, Reiki healers and people who do therapeutic touch and Qigong masters and therapeutic touch practitioners and bioenergetics people, kind of who these people are and what they do and why. And then there will be a chapter at the end. I try to assess some of the research on the efficacy of their work. So I'm really excited about this. I am, after the holidays, I'm going to be starting in on, on this book. So this will be my, this will be my 2021 project. 
Well, thank you so much, Jeff, for joining us today to talk about your book. Um, it was really a pleasure to read, to read your work and talk to you about it uh, today. Um, Religion and Medicine, A History of the Encounter Between Humanity's Two Greatest Institutions is out now.